capital in it, so. I mean, I have an invested interest, don't get me wrong, but I don't Boys, have capital, so. Let me tell you now, the Zimbabwean stock market is going to be killed. Bank stock, and that went down six. So I now I just oh, bought like a, a $2,000 worth of uh, VIX calls. Oh, uh, E, uh, this guy, Sybil Sigma, he um, took $2,000 and he randomly made $50,000 and now he lost a bunch of his money. Is this, he, is he's this, actually a pro. Is this some no, I yeah. bought some called VIX calls. Uh, like in 2008, VIX hit uh, $80. I bought them at $26, a $20 call expiring next month. So as mm -hmm. long as the coronavirus either keeps on spreading or the economy and the economy goes close to collapse, I can always break even on the rest of my portfolio. Wait, wait, you, you bought That's this awesome, in, in 2008? No, uh, I made uh, $50,000 off of space and Tesla calls, uh, like, a, a couple months ago, and I invested all that, like, in a pile of tech stocks. And I yeah, but how much did you put in and how much did you make? Uh, no, they, I lost 6% like, to the coronavirus. You, you said you, said you put money, in... I uh, put into VIX uh, calls, uh, which are actually making yeah. some money now. The reason why we were making fun of you last week is because you said you put in $2,000 into Tesla and you made $50,000 and you were bragging about it. And so we were just laughing at you. But yeah. I don't, know, not, I don't mind that, dude. I, uh, Tesla, I only made like $4,000. Spaces when I made $50,000. Cool, dude. Which is absolutely insane. <clears throat> I'm just going to say that. Oh, yeah, we were also making fun no, of Locke. Well, um, um, just, just, to, just to get back on topic, EE, uh, by the way, that was an amazing video. I really appreciated that. Um, I did. I didn't expect it to be that low. Really no. good. The value, the value is really low. It's uh, depressing, uh, actually. It's extremely high quality. It's like the uh, Extra History channel, who uh, also covered the... Uh, WeWork is more expensive than the entire Dusty <laughs> India company. Hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, but is it, it as it... Yeah. No, it's not. Did you actually ever uh, watch uh, Extra History? On the, uh, like, South Sea Bubble and the, uh, this, their, their new thing? Uh, I don't think I have, but... All of that aside, though, does everyone understand why it's not so valuable? Yes. I do. Oh, I do, I do. Did you watch the video? Because the world's not valuable. Yes, so it was a lot more Everything influential in its time. So nothing is real. Wow, okay. but, but you said in the video that it was around 20 someone billion, or it was around like what, four or five billion? I can't remember the exact number. But the total GDP of the world was like 80 billion. So that means they had like 5% of global GDP for like one company. Yeah, well, that was, that was, that was market, market capitalization based on their gold uh, value, which is uh, huge, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously yeah, that makes crazy. it far, far more influential uh, than, you know, any, any single company today. Um, so it was very, very influential mm -hmm. for its time, but uh, it's just, it was a, oh, wow. It was just a very poor time. And I see that she, like, ugh. Hey, I'm educated and a meme, all right? That's the way I roll. <laughs> At least you learned something from that meme. That's what I'm just, that's what I'm there for. Hey, you can explain. Are you ever going to cover the uh, South Sea bubble? I I will because I really enjoy the um, uh, like the the videos that are kind of like look at look at the history of, of something and how sort of economics has influenced it. Um, but I've got a really a few really interesting ones. So I haven't actually produced those yet. I do plan to, um, but I actually am going to start getting into um, like the economics of ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, ancient China, ancient India. 
um, which I think will be really, really interesting sort of to take away as well to look at kind of what made those societies uh, sort of tick way, way, way back in the day. Um, because, you know, uh, if, if anything, you know, you've got to take out of something like uh, as exciting as ancient Rome, you've got to, you know, look at their equivalent of the stock market, right? Yeah, yes. So, well, back then, would gold be considered like the uh, uh, volatility index that we have now? Sorry, what was that question? Uh, would gold, like, say, if you want to bet on volatility, would it, that be essentially betting on gold back in the olden? So, if you wanted to sort of hedge against your your risk, or, or sort of in what sense? Yeah, like, say, if you want to hedge against risk. Yeah, well, I mean, gold back in the day was probably a lot more like a currency rather than a store of wealth. Uh, but it kind of did, it was kind of a, a twofer, I suppose. Uh, it was always sort of a wide, a wise investment. But um, I don't think they necessarily had, uh, you know, sort of stock markets and, you know, active markets that were as uh, complex uh, and well-developed as the markets that we have now where you're going to see people hedging against volatility and, and things of that nature. Um Certainly, you know, people that wanted to be less risky would, would hoard, you know, sort of vast sort of fortunes of, of gold and things like that. Um, but I, I, it, it wasn't like uh, in the same sense of, of what I think you're trying to get at. Where some, I don't know, okay, some, uh, where some ancient Roman's going to be sitting down like, there. It's like, oh, for example, like, you, know, like you covered tulip mania. Uh, yep. Can that tulip mania like, be compared, uh, compared to our Bitcoins, our Teslas, and our uh, like, Virgin Galactic stocks from current day? And do you think people back then ever like hedged their money against that sort of tulip mania? Like take some of their like at the top, take some of the tulips out and like sell it for gold and make a huge profit? Sure. Now tulip bubble was probably the um, sort of first incidents in, in recorded history that we have of, you know, speculative in like uh, speculative bubble. And that's why it's sort of the go to is like, you know, this this really famous um, kind of, of thing. Now it came around and it was so well sort of seen for a few reasons. One, um, it was actually sort of recorded. So uh, the Dutch had a very, very sort of robust system of, of documenting and accounting for things like trades. And, uh, and that's where we could actually sort of see price charts and stuff like that. Whereas potentially there were, um, you know, let's say speculative uh, investments back in the day, but it, they probably just kind of flew under the radar because no one actually accounted for them. Um, but realistically, it's kind of the first recorded instance that we really know of where such a thing has happened. What I'm saying of is, is um, uh, what, what's the uh, sort of word I'm, I'm looking for? It's like technically proficient. Um, societies weren't, uh, uh, it's, it's like you, the way that you talk about investors is like uh, sort of mum and dad investors and then there's like a, um, an investor that are, that, are, that are switched on and they kind of like, they're not institutional. Retail versus active? No, no, no. Uh, there's a word I'm looking for, and um, uh, fuck, and it's really eluding me, and it, and it would go... Yeah, of... I'm lost at what you're trying to describe as well. <laughs> Keep going, though. <laughs> My god. All right, all right. I've got to get this word. I've got to get this word if it all right, freaking all right. kills me. Um, uh, it's, it's like a... What does it rhyme with? It's, it's like a compliment, um, and it's like, uh, you know, you... you uh, if you call someone that, it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're switched on, they're smart, they're you know, clever, they, they can take sort of more risks. Uh, it's the things that like like hedge funds can only sort of sell investments to these particular kind of individuals. They have to have over like sort of $10 million in trading capital. Um, sophisticated, sophisticated. Ah, yes, sophisticated <laughs> investors. Yes. My God, boy, yes. you got there. Yes, 
There we go. All right. Oh my god. Okay. All I right. Was something Massive brain fart. All right. Let's just wipe that and pretend that didn't happen. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank I have, you. I have a question on this. All right. So, markets back in the day were not as sophisticated as they are today. We didn't have, you know, uh, put and call options and futures and, and swaps and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, we didn't have, you know, derivatives and, and things of that nature. You know, back in the day, look, we were sort of, uh, let's say, let, let's take ancient Rome, for example. Um, certainly, it had a very active and dynamic market economy, but um, investments and things of that nature were not nearly as sophisticated as they are today. People would realistically invest in, uh, you know, land. They'd go out and buy up land, and you know, potentially they'd run their own business. And there wasn't this sort of sense that I'm going to invest in X Y Z company and expect X Y Z returns. Uh, it was more I got to go out and sort of, you know, build my own wealth by hoarding hoarding my own gold, or you know, kind of conquering and maintaining my own farmland or running my own business. And that was probably about as advanced as it actually realistically got. So no, I don't think uh, it would be fair to say that gold, for example, was a hedge against volatility back in the day because if you went to even a very, very sophisticated Roman, um, you know, sort of wealthy Roman merchant or something like that, he, he wouldn't know, he wouldn't be able to tell you what volatility meant. He'd be like, huh? yeah, okay, there's some, there's some bad times, there's some good times, you know, that, that all has to do with the gods and the weather. Now, I, can't, I can't hedge against that. And what's a hedge? A hedge is what Julius Caesar wears on his head. Exactly. There are some instances in history where we do have the occasional investor who stumbles upon the idea of um, like hedging through contract, but they're not widespread. Uh, I think like we have uh, instances within the Bible uh, of that, but it's not like they're not commonplace. And and even the most sophisticated people, they're more of like ah, these are little like contract things, and they're like. They really ultimately devolve into speculation, and so they eventually just stay away from those. And no, there's no market for these things. It's more of these are one-time things that occasionally pop up in history, but for the most part, there's no evidence suggesting that they are widespread or commonplace. Yeah, the, the stock market today is, um, you know, pr pretty crazy. The, the, even the idea that like, you know, something like Wall Street bets. Uh, would be crazy to, to think it would exist sort of 20 years ago, let alone, you know, 100 years ago or, um, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago. It, it's just one of those things that people have a lot more access to, to these advanced kind of financial instruments that uh, were kind of unheard of even 20 years ago and, and unthinkable to be used by, by individuals. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, it's an interesting question, an interesting sort of theory, but, um, yeah, but either way, um, you know, just be careful with your investment, boys. All right, so we had a question over on the YouTube live stream. Someone said, are you concerned about this recent market crash? Um, and no, not really. Uh, I mean, it's hurt a bit, but uh, I mean, for whatever it's worth, my personal investing strategy is a, a lot less exciting than Sybil's here, where I don't make $50,000 overnight by investing in Tesla and then lose it all the next day. Uh, I just... <laughs> Buy and hold Vanguard exchange traded funds, and uh, you know, ride it out over the next sort of forty years. So, um, realistically, I think I've lost all the money that I made for this year. But uh, you know, good times with the bad, right? It's still early in the year. I didn't lose any of my money yet. I only lost like I, I took the money. I took my gains out right away at uh, when uh, space hit uh, forty dollars. I put it into a pile of tech stocks, and they all went down like six percent. But now I have like insurance against it. Yeah, Sibley did make a good call on that. 
Yeah. Um, I, I have so a question. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I don't know where to cut in all the time because the conversation just like never ends. So I'm just like going to put myself in there. Uh, yeah, there's no full stops. But yeah, uh, the question I had is you spoke about the pie increasing, right? So the valuation of our goods and services is more or less determined by the market, right? So I guess how did the, the theoretical pie get bigger? Was it just through more people being involved in the economy? Uh, and then therefore produced more goods or services, or was it some other factors? Uh, and also like, I guess, um, countries that are fairly authoritarian, like China can inf influence their markets. So how would that all play, I guess, in the next 80 to 100 years, like will the pie ever like, keep increasing or like, yeah, I don't really know what I'm trying to say, but no, I, I don't understand how the entire... I, I know what you're trying thing. to ask better than you, because it's a weird yeah. concept. We kind of just see the world... Yeah, it is. Uh, humans are, are, have got this predisposition of everything's a zero-sum game, uh, and we kind of consider mm -hmm. that the economy, so 200 years ago, the, the world was just as rich as it is today. It's just, you know, the technology was a little bit worse, yada, yada, yada. Um, but it's not the yeah. case. You know, the, the world economy, you know... Um, two, three hundred years ago was much, 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 much smaller than it is today. And here's sort of the reason why. When you sort of do Economics 101, one of the first things you'll hear uh, is about sort of opportunity costs. The trade-off of, you know, deciding on one thing over the other, uh, and then you draw what we call a production possibility frontier. And normally that's designed to educate people around how, you know, you can build, uh, you know, factories or you can build video game consoles, and but you, you only have enough resources to build, you know, X amount of this or Y amount of that or any combination of this as it sort of appears on this uh, production possibility frontier. Because there's only so much, I don't know, metal and, and material and all that kind of stuff to go into producing these things. In now, time. In now, time. If you're producing right on that line, you're said to be using every available resource that is available, you know, that is present to you in the most efficient manner possible with zero waste. And that's fantastic. And that's, you know, an economy right, right on the edge of, of what it's possible to do. But there are ways to increase that production possibility frontier outwards. So what that is, is either discovering more resources. So, you know, um, back in the day, Europe was sort of very centralized around their sort of little nation and they sort of expanded out into the world and built up colonies. That was a great way for them to increase their production possibility frontier and increase their wealth. Um, but of course, that eventually, yeah, of course, eventually you run out of colonies to, to, you know, sort of, uh, lord over and you have to look at something else. Now, another big one was, of course increasing technology. Technology is another way to massively increase your uh, production possibility frontier. So as soon as they started transitioning from agrarian societies into industrial societies, uh, again, the amount that they could produce and the sort of the, like the possibility that they had to trade off of, you know, any sort of set amount of goods increased. And the next one, of course, is you can increase the amount of people. Um, so you can increase how many sort of people are, are in a society, you know, more hands uh, normally are able to uh, produce more stuff. And, and of course, the population of the world has massively increased since sort of 300 years ago. Now, uh, that's sort of one of those ones where it's a little bit tricky of a trade-off because, of course, if you have more hands, uh, even though you might be able to produce more wealth, you have more hands to feed at the end of the day, so maybe it doesn't go as far. But still, for a sort of net 
uh, effect on the economy, it does increase wealth. Now, between 300 years ago uh, and today, there are a few things. Starters, of course, our population's massively increased and our technology uh, has increased in an unbelievable manner. So, you know, the entire fleet of the Dutch East India Company had less cargo hold than a you know a single container ship today. You know, an average container ship, um, you know, can hold many sort of hundreds or you know potentially even thousands of shipping containers, and that was much much larger than the entirety of the Dutch East India Company fleet. And there are thousands of of merchant ships sailing the world's oceans today, and you know accommodating trade on a level that would be unimaginable to people 300 years ago. Uh, the same thing is true for you know hey we looked at the example of things like spices and and stuff like that. Um, you know, today it's so easy for us to produce stuff like that because, you know, we have technology, we have sort of things like, uh, you know, easy shipping, we have um, sort of a, a good knowledge of how to use fertilizers and stuff like that. So uh, it's very cheap and easy for us to produce I, those kinds of things. It's also much faster for us to ship them around the world. And the other thing, of course, I guess, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, that, like, the second part of the question when I, when I spoke about China, which was, wouldn't the last region on earth that um, like the poorest region on earth after like China or India or even Latin America or whatever develops, wouldn't the last region on earth get the most benefits since the technological innovation is already far exceeded? Uh, poorer countries tend to have more kids. So a place like Africa would have enormous amount of kids and their population is expected to be around 2 billion or so um, by the end of the century. Like wouldn't those countries benefit the most since they have the technological innovation, they'll have the capital they'll have the resources, human capital, and Africa is on the top of enormous amount of uh, natural resources. Wouldn't a place like that, like it, the countries that come after the, uh, the, 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 the region that developed comes, first. Uh, is it the biggest disadvantage? Because yeah. they've got to sort of reinvent the wheel. That's a fantastic question. And it actually does kind of uh, link in well for it. So uh, would they become wealthier at the end? No. Um, what they do, and the advantage they do have, sorry, is that they are able to go through the process a lot faster. When we looked at the Industrial Revolution in, you know, England, which was the first country to really embrace modern industry, uh, the whole process, you know, probably took over a hundred years to sort of really gain traction. And it started from, you know, basic textile mills, and you know, of course, eventually it turned into, you know, mass production of um, very, very heavy industry. Um, but it was slow and, you know, they had to invent, you know, they went from basically water power to, to steam power and then, you know, slowly embraced things like electricity as they became available. But it was a tough and tedious process and they had a lot of, you know, failures and stuff like that. But they had to build the machines to build the machines to build things. Um, and it was uh, one of those sort of, you know, tricky things that was kind of slow. Now, of course, as more and more nations kind of came on board, we sort of see things like, you know, America. And it probably went through the whole process in about 50 years uh, and then, you know, I guess the most poignant example these days is China, who seems to have, you know, within the last 15 years, um, or sort of at least within the space of 15 years, gone from a, you know, very, very poor rural nation to a very, very rich nation. And that was because, you know, they didn't need to reinvent how to build a lathe or a, you know, production line or stuff like that international companies and, and foreign investors and, and you know the sort of the knowledge of the world was able to show them how to do that effectively uh, and mm -hmm. they kind of just embraced that they didn't have to reinvent you know how to use electricity it was pretty much common knowledge at that point they didn't have to sort of uh, reinvent how to refine steel 
they knew. So they were able to sort of bring that on board without having to R&D it along the way, and they were able to turn that around a lot, lot quicker. Now, yeah, Africa, new problem, think, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, Africa, when it sort of does take it off, you know, if it does take off, we'll also have another thing. These days, people know that when countries take that transition from agrarian to industrial, that there is a lot of wealth that's generated in a very short period of time. So people are really, mm-hmm. really excited to invest into these countries, uh, which also helps the whole process. England had to effectively invest into itself. And, you know, countries like China, while it's sort of a little bit temperamental, a lot of its development still had to do with, you know, foreign investment to build, you know, factories and things of that nature, even if it was done in a very mm-hmm. kind of weird way. So yeah, uh, I see. Really, really, really good question. Um, yeah, and that, I think I have, I have another one, but let's give someone else a chance. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go I with Mr. Explained, what does uh, Bernie Sanders call himself? A democratic socialist and compare himself to like the Nordic countries. Like I know the Nordic countries are social democracies with high taxes, but by the true definition mm. of socialism, which is using the means of production, uh, Sweden, uh, uh, Sweden, uh, and Finland have not done anything close to that. Like they, they're still like they're probably some of the freest markets in the entire world. Their governments like much financial market. Why do people like Bernie Sanders call these places uh, socialist when they're when they even the even their elected officials say they're pure capitalists? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'm not sure to be honest. Normally, what we mean when we say sort of like socialist uh, or social policies uh, is referring to you know the social good of of a society. That's the social good of a society, which normally means. Um, Governments going kind of giving welfare directly or indirectly to, um, you know, participants in a society. So that's probably where um, potentially sort of the, the the phrasing has become a bit askew when we talk about social policies. It's like things like you know, aged care, pension, unemployment benefits, you know, healthcare and things like that, universal healthcare for all, where the government's giving you know effectively money to people so that they can have a certain quality of life, uh, regardless of um, you know, their uh, sort of current sort of uh, personal means. Now, that, of course, sort of has a lot of overlap, I suppose, with socialism or communism, uh, where everyone sort of gets uh, a set amount of stuff from the government, and that's kind of their quota, I suppose. Um, But, I mean, branding is such a silly, dumb thing in economics, it's almost as sort of silly and askew as it is in, in politics. What this definition means and what that definition means is uh, so lost in everybody, you know, sort of saying this, that, and anything else uh, that it does cause confusion like this. Because realistically, if we were, you know, I, I don't think Bernie Sanders is, is advocating for communist Russia. What he wants is, um, you, know, you know, let's say something like Norway, which is, like a mixed market economy you know certainly it has strong social policies it has you know very very strong uh, welfare for individuals and unemployment it has very strong you know protections for you know, for this that and everything else but uh it's still sort of a capitalist nation people can get wealthy people you know can get poor and you know people can sort of build stuff so a uh, good question and i think uh the answer to it is labels are dumb like, like if you Google the definition of socialism, the first thing that comes up is seizing, like a country that has seized the means of production, people own the means of production. Like, why is that word degraded so much? Like, the Soviet Union was called the United Soviet Socialist Republic. Because uh, it's because these systems socialist. change over time. Like, America isn't even capitalist anymore. Mm. Yeah, and it's so it's considered a capitalist 
country. Even in Indian constitution, we have the word socialist socialism in imbibed in it. That yeah. does not make us a socialist country. And, yeah, uh, I mean, China is communist party, so yeah. branding. So, well, they are a communist country. So, so my yeah. advi- my advice for anyone is is look at the actual policies themselves. Uh, and uh, ignore the labels because the labels sort of mean absolutely nothing these days. Uh, it's um, probably just all. Thank you, EE. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I've been I've been saying this for the last two months. Uh, and when you guys when you were going over your billionaires video and you were going over like the, the wealth and say if like uh, for example Jeff Bezos had to pay that massive wealth tax like seven percent of his like seven percent of his net worth every few years. And his net worth would, was be calculated off of like his, he's like ninety two percent of his net worth is based on his Amazon share, and for him to like worth back it excels a certain percentage of his net shares every year. Like, wouldn't that single handedly create a like level of social state since everyone would automatically sell their Amazon shares also at the exact same time, creating a huge dip, huge dip in like the uh, owner share of the company, and there and therefore uh, well, aside from like a huge economic crisis start to begin or good or real socially conscious uh so you're cutting you're cutting in and out a, a lot uh interesting concept the whole wealth tax and how it can impact things so um we'll sort of touch on it briefly let's say it is seven percent yeah you're right now investors could anticipate look i mean hey let's let's take jeff bezos as an example oh you know it's the you know it's the 20th of july it's almost the end of the financial year uh, jeff bezos has got to sell his seven percent to you know pay his taxes so we know what this market dip is going to look like sure the price will fall but investors will anticipate it and they'll probably sort of control that because it is something that they can easily sort of predict happening um but i mean of course you know that would mean that over time it, regardless of if the price of, of amazon sort of rise, rise, rose uh, or fell you know, he would sort of eventually kind of wean himself off that. Now, you know, returns and certainly Amazon shares returns have exceeded uh, 7% annually over the sort of lifetime of the company. So it's hypothetically possible that even with such a tax that he could uh, continue to increase his wealth. I haven't actually heard um, someone suggest 7%. I've heard 2%, which I think is probably a much more reasonable sort of um, tax on sort of ultra high net worth individuals, but I think it's probably going to be one of those things again where it'll be really, really difficult to kind of say because it's very hard to value a company uh, and it's also very, very hard to value the wealth of these kinds of individuals. But interesting question, and uh, look, I mean, between you and I, 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 uh, I, I don't see it happening in America, to be honest. I have, I have a question, which is like you spoke about spices, right? Nutmeg was, I think you said it was like almost the same price as gold or something. I can't remember, something like that, right? So I guess my question is now that space, uh, space exploration is taking off, wouldn't, um, like if you find gold in an asteroid, wouldn't that deflate? Like, what is the incentive for government to fund space uh, space exploration and space mining when it could, in theory, destroy a lot of their reserves in gold and silver and platinum, and it could undermine a lot of in- industries? Yeah. So, oh. so com- governments will not, um, well, or any kind of institution is not going to go out and mine gold or platinum in space simply because it, it would not be worth it. 
even if you could get, you know, pure platinum sort of out of an asteroid somewhere, it would cost way, way, way more uh, to mine that. And even if you could sell it at market rates, um, the, the, the cost to actually sort of facilitate that, you know, the cost of space travel is, is just so astronomically high that it wouldn't be worth it. Now, I think this space station is about $100 billion. Not entirely true. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, okay. I, I, let's be clear what EE is saying is at the moment, <laughs> you know. No, even, even then, if you can get like a low Earth uh, asteroid that comes very, very close to Earth, like, I think there's like one every 20 years, and like, uh, like something like SpaceX can actually go to that place. Even it's not as easy as you think. It's possible. Yeah, it's not as easy as you think. The country actually did the math on this, and they showed how profitable it can be like in the next 20, 20 or so years. Or even yeah, exactly. In the next 20 years, when the technology gets lower, uh, the, the price of the technology gets reduced, the research and development is there. So even but but, but let, let's let's run with it as a hypothetical because it's really interesting to explore from two angles. Now at the moment there are things potentially worth mining. You know helium three on the moon is a good example because it you know it's a much more sort of valuable mm -hmm. sort of resource for for its weight. You know many many thousands of times yeah. more valuable than gold. Um, but also let's sort of hypothetically take um, this example of let's say that there's a huge block of platinum out there all right so platinum's a really really valuable precious metal and, it, and it's useful not only for its sort of alluvial value but also uh its inherent industrial applications so um there's sort of probably an impetus to actually go out and get that kind of particular resource so let's say um you just break even on it okay so let's say obviously space travel is very very expensive at the moment but you know spacex sort of is 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 kicking things up a notch and you know let's say it's something that you know we kind of do the math on and it's slightly worthwhile now of course if you bring that back if you bring it you know let's say uh, a million tons of platinum back to the earth and start selling it off of course it's going to devalue the um you know the value of platinum these precious metals like gold platinum silver all that sort of stuff are valued because they are rare you know they're very stable so they don't sort of wear away but they're a very good store of value that's sort of been historically recognized over a very very long time when you kind of kick that can of worms of hey you know hey maybe we don't actually have a limited supply of platinum or gold um, because we can kind of just go out and yeet a new space rock into into low earth orbit and steal that well why the fuck would I sort of store my wealth as gold or platinum or anything like that? So it kind of loses um, its sort of thing that it had going for it, that there's a limited supply of this. Um, so that's a, that's a really kind of rough one, and it would kind of affect the, the value of that commodity now and in the future. But it's also a really good way of thinking about it in regards to um, nutmeg. So yeah. back in the day, nutmeg was as valuable as gold per ton because it was so freaking hard to get. Uh, you know, you had to send these shitty wooden ships halfway across the world and, you know, hold down the, 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 the local, uh, you know, uh, population and kind of, ancestors. yeah, good yeah, yeah, the good old days, you know, um, to actually sort of facilitate this. And all it did was kind of made your, your meat taste a little bit better and, and, and have a little less Ebola on it. So, um, you know, it was kind of there and it was a, effectively a luxury good. Now, gold today mm -hmm. is the same, you know, it's very, very hard to get, requires a lot of mining, but we know it's out there. But our spaceships today are the equivalent of those shitty wooden ships from 300 years ago 300 years mm -hmm. from now i sort of anticipate that yeah we will have sort of 
um, much, much sort of more in the way of sort of by space flight, and it'll be a lot more routine, and we'll have sort of uh, things that make, you know, those, you know, wooden uh, square riggers look as outdated as, you know, uh, container ships make our ships look today. So what that would mean is in 300 years from now, we're going to be like gold. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I line my car in gold because it has like good heat conducting properties. Like, what's the what's the point of it? You know, like yeah, sure. I you know, I use gold for my CPU cooler because it's got great you know thermal conductivity. Uh, yeah, oh, this used to be really valuable back in the day. <laughs> Weird. Who would ever thought that? I I wrap my uh, food in gold for you know to, to keep it in the, the the refrigerator the same way, the same way that we use aluminium foil today. But aluminium foil, or sorry, aluminium back in the day was also as valuable as gold. Uh, as technology improves, we sort of take these these um, resources for granted. Sort of. Get, yeah. Well, I'd say I'd say I'd, it wouldn't really be like that because our population rapidly increased, which brought down the prices of nutmeg because uh, it gave uh, people incentive to produce more of it. So in the case of gold, our population is set to decrease. Our population is set to never even hit uh, 12 billion people. Theoretically, it'll just decrease because the economies will get more developed. People will stop having kids. So. Oh, we'd have more room to expand. What the fuck? <laughs> what was that? That's You guys ever just leave your like voice filter on by accident? Uh. No. <laughs> Dude, who are you trapping, man? Are you trapping? This is conversation the economics of the Dutch East India Company. Any, anyway, it's, uh, you're yeah, going to travel to these uh, asteroids yeah, to mine them. Yeah. We're more or less just going to actually like nuke them or like bomb bomb them to like change their trajectory so that they actually collide with Earth. And then once they collide, we'll yeah. just mine them on the Earth. Like, it's, it's not, wow. not going to. I, I heard Africa is very barren. You should actually try. <laughs> you, you had me. You had me at nuking things in space. I'm on board. Yes, because what we're actually going to do is like well, the small asteroids that pass by the Earth probably crash on the fucking day, like thousands and thousands and thousands. What we're playing That's what Africa's just, uh, for, dude. Hit, hit, like, dude, like, I want to go out uh, like this. Hit direction. the asteroid at a certain uh, angle to change its trajectory to actually hit Earth in a place where that's not going to matter that much. And well, uh, like, Africa. like in the ocean or something. And it's just, they're going to be very small asteroids. And they're going to have like a lot of materials, like gold and silver and platinum on them. Then we're going to use those materials to uh, like build, our build our technology. That's what uh, the mm. government of Luxembourg is saying. I mean, uh, we're not, we're not, we're what not, I'm not, saying is that I don't think we can speculate about the, oh, uh, the future of, of sort of how exactly we're going to, what the mechanisms of uh, mining space will be, but uh, certainly I, the economics. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really asking about the economics of mining space. That just was a tangent that everyone went towards. I was saying that. We evolved, I mean, not we evolved, our systems evolved to mass produce goods because there were more people and there were bigger markets. And so you needed to increase means of production. But our population is going to decrease in the future. And we're, we're now technically going to have an abundance of resources if in the future you could space mine and all of that. So I guess how would our markets grow in the future if our population is never going to see 12 billion and it's going to decrease? I mean, just putting people on Mars doesn't mean you're going to have a bunch of kids. Uh, like, because, I mean, because technology will massively increase. Uh, so even but it, it has. Yeah, we'll become like a type 1, type 2, type 3 civilization, like you said before. It, yeah. it has happened in Japan. And like technological in innovation has a limit because it's supply and demand. And there's no demand. There's limited demand. 
when the, if the demand goes downwards, then the supply will decrease as well. Well, I mean, that's because uh, Japan has anime, though. That's kind of different. No, dude. dude, dude. Kind of, like, there's like thousands, dude, if you actually look at human history, like we've been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Like, mm. It's only been like 300 years since the Industrial Revolution, and technology has still increased exponentially. It's not yeah, like, that's, it's that's, that's not what I'm saying. As it was maybe 10 years ago, but. Because still, technology really has increased. Like, we're just, technology like, has we're just, like, increased really, because really, uh, human beings. Very, very are skewed perspective right now. No, I don't have a skewed perspective. And what I'm saying is that the population was the big driver. And if our population decreases. Like, you look at China versus Britain. Britain had like a population a tenth of the size of China, and their technology improved tenfold compared to China. Like, population had nothing to do with it. Population has a lot to do with it, like you just explained in the video. China's at its, China is at its very early stages, and it's already almost at the GDP of America. It has a very, very far, long way to go. And that's because technological innovation improves as more people go in, get developed, and they can build more things, etc. Okay, so... But what happens when it stops? So don't, 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 don't shout at each other as well. We're all here for a civil conversation. Um, but no. tech technology, uh, sorry, pop population in China. All right, that's it. I'm using the God mode thing. Uh, all right. So population is a very, very important function of GDP. And it's often one that's actually seen as a bit of a drawback of using GDP as a figure because naturally having more hands in an economy leads to a bigger GDP. Just with the way that GDP is calculated, it's effectively a, a measure of how much money is trading hands. Now, having you know ha having more money to trade hands with is is one way to increase GDP, but also just having more hands is also another way to increase GDP. Now, Japan was sort of a really good um, sort of uh, I suppose case study to look at this because yeah, it would suggest that potentially a stagnating population leads to a stagnating economy. But um, there's a few things to unpack there. For starters. That's over the space of 30 years, and that's gone from an economy that was probably massively overinflated to now an economy that's sort of uh, more realistic and also more sensible. And it also has other headwinds that aren't sort of no, you know. Uh, I think you might have uh, muted your mic a bit. Really? No, no I can I hear. Can hear everything you no, can. I can hear you. Okay, and it also it also has some other headwinds that are probably holding them back, apart from just their population. You know, lack of ability to embrace things like, uh, you know. Skilled, skilled migration and, and things of that nature, uh, as well as sort of, you know, relatively large debt. And, you know, there's a, there's a few things holding it back. But still, I would like to argue that the living um, conditions of, you know, an average mm -hmm. Japanese citizen have actually improved. It's just that's one of those things that's it's kind of difficult to sort of uh, see. And that's just sort of an effect of technology. 30 years ago today, you know, a lot of Japanese people wouldn't have had a home computer. They would certainly not have had a phone that could... You know, tell them anything that they needed to know in real time, wherever they were in the world. You know, they wouldn't have had sort of, well, actually, they probably did have a lot more access to international travel back then. The Japanese kind of went crazy with international travel. But uh, in general, still, there's a lot to be said for an increased living conditions. Now, um, certainly, let's say that I'm actually kind of a big believer in that $12 billion uh, cap on population. I think, you know, as we sort of get more civilized, realistically, our population will stagnate unless we embrace, you know, um, you know, space colonization and things of that nature. Um, but... Islam. Well, Jesus. All right. Um, no. So, we uh, Japan's ethnocentrism is hindering their economy. Yeah, a, a lot of, a lot of, it's there's a lot of stuff. It. It's still rising exponentially if you look at the long term. Exactly. Uh, it's just that it's kind of been in a bit of a rut for the last sort of 30 years. Now... Um, mm -hmm. th th this is sort of how I... Economies are more like step functions, dude. They don't increase the linearly. They're step functions. 
like based on the current technology they have. As soon as like a new technology comes out, they're gonna like double again, more than likely. The, the the way I like to see companies of the future is I'm sort of a big believer in automation and things like that. And um, you know, I don't know if sort of any of you guys like to play real time strategy games. Uh, you know, back in the back in the day, I don't know. I like I liked Age of Empires, and uh, you know, a lot of people like StarCraft and things like that. Um, now um, that is how I sort of foresee companies being run in the future. It'll probably be you know, let's say a multinational corporation with. Um, you know, billions and billions of dollars in revenue will be run by sort of 12 guys sitting in a room basically playing an RTS game. It's like, oh, I'm going to sort of send my ships over there and they'll do this, and it's, it's all sort of automated. Um, you know, it'll sort of be very yeah. cool, but... Uh, Dude, I'd love that. Give my mind, like, action. Hey, that's what I'm doing right now, so... But it's, but it's legitimately with actual sort of ships that, that sort of do, do their real. thing. And, Stuff uh, real. You know, you can... Like actual space cops. Yeah, you can control, oh. you can control your, your army of, you know, space robots and stuff like that. And that's legitimately how I sort of foresee companies sort of operating in, in the sort of relatively distant future. I'm talking probably about 100 years from now, uh, at least. And that is sort of how they'll kind of embrace, you know, technology like automation and things like that and get over sort of the head headwinds of that. Uh, and, and certainly, I think, um, you know, if, as long as we don't nuke ourselves or as long as we, I don't know, we don't all die to this virus, um, we uh, are certainly going to be a lot wealthier 100 years from now than we are today, just in the same way that we're a lot wealthier today than we were 100 years ago. Uh, and the big sort of marching force behind that is, uh, is technology. Population is yeah. certainly important, um, but, but, but less so in the sort of face of technology. I mean, if you look at a map of like the GDP of Japan over like the last 100 years, like you can make an obvious argument that it's stagnating, but if you look at a map of like the GDP of Japan over the last like 5,000 years, and you just like see like this exponential curve in the last maybe 1,000, like you can see that no one would ever argue that it's stagnating now. It's like make, maybe like a little, like a, maybe like one small line of like maybe 30 years, but in the grand scheme of things, like it has risen exponentially like over like 10,000, 100,000 percent over the last 5,000 years. Yeah, no, I, argue with that. I think uh, another big thing that will probably happen to look, I mean, um, Japan as well, of course, you know, their, their population is, is sort of also stagnating. And um, I think what will eventually happen is um, potentially, potentially their, their, let's say their, their actual sort of GDP or growth rate doesn't move anywhere. It's just kind of pretty stagnant. Um, but their population will start to shrink, which means their actual wealth per person mm. will kind of go up. And as morbid as that sounds, you know, people die. Uh, and you know, normally sort of older people die, uh, and that means that you know, sort of the people that inherit the nation are um, going to be wealthier than the the people that came before them, which is actually now, I promise I wouldn't. I, I'm gonna be sort of strong-armed into doing another video on the coronavirus because it doesn't go past where I don't have a thousand comments and emails and shit like that. People ask me, hey, what's, the, what's the impact of the coronavirus? But between you guys, hey, I man, don't have me. I was I was um, having a conversation with my partner around the breakfast table, and uh, she said I was a horrible, horrible person. Um, Perfect. But but, uh, but this is this is my theory on it. So I'm um, oh my God, like I don't know how to say this without sounding absolutely terrible. Uh, like uh, I also see this because I, I do a sort of dollar cost averaging kind of thing with with my investment strategy long term, and I'm a sort of very much a long term buy and hold kind of investor. Um, but I'm sort of enjoying this sort of market, well, I wouldn't really call it a market crash, but sort of the market reversal from, from like this year. I think we've lost about two months worth of gains and everyone's losing their minds. Um, but 
long term, this is the impact I sort of see it having on, on the economy. It's going to do one of two things. Let's say option one, right? Uh, it's not as bad as people think it is. It turns into a sort of a flu that, you know, hey, maybe it's an endemic, endemic and it, uh, you know, kind of rock, cracks up every sort of uh, one or two years that we develop a vaccine and, you know, people kind of just learn to live with it in the same way that we learn to live with, you know, sort of the regular seasonal flu. All right, no worries. Everyone's overreacted and, you know, obviously the stock market will recover from all of that kind of scary uh, volatility. Now, option two is let's say it is the next Spanish flu. Um, let's say it really is something that's going to kill, you know, tens of millions or, you know, heaven forbid, hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, it spreads to everyone on earth and, you know, elderly populations are really heavily affected and all of that kind of stuff. All right. This is where it gets bad. For the economy, that's really good. I fully agree with you, That's where I understand. I understand where you're coming from, E. I understand and I agree with you. I wouldn't say that in public, but I agree. For all these governments, stop relying on acts of God Bad. and take initiative. All we have to do is plant a thermonuclear device World in the Atlantic region. Stop talking over each other. No one can hear anything. Allow it to radiate the water that streams into China and India, wipe out both India and China at the same time. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, let's not do wow. that. And then we have yeah, no that's, that's one of the things to recover from. Let's make your let's make your investments uh, skyrocket. All right. Well, well look, that's, that's, I mean, that's something great for me. I, I'm only thinking I'm only thinking out, you know, I'm only looking out for you here. Oh god. <laughs> okay. Second. Like, to explain is that like our massive social security industry like in Japan, Canada and everywhere else has to constantly pay out all this huge amounts of money for all these extremely old people who are not going to be working. Like, if we have a huge elderly population who contributes nothing to the economy, well, then the entire economy is going to do worse off. And don't you have also a dwindling um, younger workforce? So, as the explains, if we can, like, get rid of them and get the wealth to the younger people <laughs> and have those younger people work, then, like, those younger people can actually afford houses so, for once. It, 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 it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a... It's kind of a housing all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. I know this is controversial, but please, for the love of God, stop talking over each other. It's so annoying. What's one problem that the virus is good and not have like a huge The elderly and the disabled, because we're just going to kill them. All right, I'm going to meet him until he calms down. Um, okay. You can you can type, but but you got to give him admin rights. This has been fun, but I've got to go now. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, see ya. No, no, no. Okay, so, Good night, so, man. so here's, here's, the, here's the actual mechanisms behind how it works. Now, that's kind of a one-two punch. The first is obviously that, you know, uh, elderly populations through, you know, social security, things like pension plans and retirement funds and stuff like that, they are drawing and sort of leaning on a society um, without actually contributing anything back to it. Now, of course, you know, the, the rationale is that, you know, during their working careers, that they, they've contributed and they've sort of put in their part and now society's looking after them in their old age, uh, which is fine. And obviously, morally, that kind of makes sense. But let's say hypothetically that that's not the case. We don't have to look after them because, you know, they're dead. Uh, well, then, uh, you know, society can sort of be a little bit more unhindered with that. But I think that is um, sort of one side of it that, that most people see, but 
think the big one that most people miss is that let's say dear you know aunt uncle john uh you know unfortunately passes away from from coronavirus and, and of course you know it's still human life so i don't i don't want to be too facetious about this because my goodness i'm sounding like a terrible person um but you know let's say he does and he you know leaves his estate to you know younger people that are you know kind of probably weather the virus a little bit better well suddenly you know these new sort of young let's say millennials people in their 20s 30s you know even their 40s get this huge influx of of wealth you know um they get the estate of their sort of deceased relatives well that means you know they can go out and buy those new cars they can go out and buy that new clothes that new boat that new house and that gets money circulating through the economy a lot of older people sort of later on in their life they have a lot of you know wealth sort of tied up in investments that's just there to support them and, and provide an income whereas that huge cash influx to um sort of people that are younger gets them out there spending um so you know that uh, kind of you know gives a bit of a kickstart to the economy so during the whole sort of outbreak of course it'll be terrible but i think realistically uh if it's not as bad as it seems then it's not as bad as it seems and the economy will recover if it is as bad as it seems then um you know it's probably still not as bad as it seems and, and the economy will recover of course human loss of life terrible thing but my goodness uh please don't hate me but uh, that was just sort of the thought i had this morning and, and it didn't win me any favors damn man i'm about to unsubscribe to i'm just i'm so offended no oh, i yes. know old people man some of my best friends are old people. <laughs> I know. My grandparents are old people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have a question. So I know like two weeks ago is when I asked you if you were going to make something about the virus. And you kind of said you probably weren't because you did the whole economics of disasters. Yeah. And the reason I had asked then was because of like manufacturing. And I noticed for like just personal purchases, things were getting delayed like really like long uh just for stuff i ordered from that um and now we're seeing a lot of canceling of like big uh like conventions and summits and stuff like the uh, mobile uh electronics like convention in spain i think it was got canceled uh a few events in america are getting canceled like pax i think east or something a lot of people are dropping out of it. Apparently, and the, the 2020 Olympics being yeah uh, suspended. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Like, what what do you think that's gonna do? Uh, well, for... to, to, to the economy, short term, it's gonna be terrible. Of course, you know, if the virus is as bad as it says, that's a huge sort of hindrance because, of course, you know, uh, global supply chains will be affected. People will be less likely to go out and spend money. You know, effectively, people are gonna sort of lock themselves up in their house, and you know, things are gonna stop um so yeah you know, certainly sort of short term um you know as with anything sort of as with a, a war or um you know an outbreak or you know natural disasters and things of that nature um they're, they're very very bad for an economy that i don't think you need me to tell you uh, what i was sort of speculating well, what about with. something like cancelling the olympics specifically okay it's, it's bad for the economy you know it's sort of japan's probably invested a lot of money into this infrastructure and it's expecting sort of tourist dollars and you know certainly there's a lot of um you know sort of money that kind of changes hands during big events like this um and you know let's say hypothetically it gets cancelled well they sort of uh are denied that kind of circulation which is which is bad for an economy so would you ever buy call spreads on the uh uh volatility index 
No, man, I just, I, I just buy, I just buy Vanguard funds and, you know, buy and hold. Hashtag write but, it out. Uh, you, like, uh, like the concept of buying like call spreads on a volatility index just completely breaks your mind. But how like, many derivatives you're taking? This guy. <laughs> oh man, well, I'm going to start another channel like um, Wall Street Bets Explained <laughs> or like uh, Bankruptcy <laughs> Explained. Follow these three <laughs> simple steps. 100 to 1 leverage, use the equity in your home. Literally can't go tits up. Oh, you man. Can, you can be my guest host every week. That's <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I love the doctor and she, like, she tells me about the coronavirus and how like, it's like completely underreported and it's been, like the real numbers are going to come out more and more and more, like just based, based on the disease of, on itself. And so she's like, I've actually, she's convinced me to like invest, maybe like, give me like, if like we have like another repeat of 2008, uh, I can make a huge profit on on uh, my uh, volatility uh, option plays. Yeah, well, look, I mean, my, my fear with that would be, obviously, a lot of... Uh, all right, we're going to talk about investing. Fine, you've convinced me. All right, let's get, it, <laughs> let's get it done. Now, a lot of this kind of uncertainty is already priced into the market, so people are kind of anticipating that, yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk around, you know, that the actual figures are underreported, and, you know, for a lot of people, they don't even notice that they have the virus, and so it, they kind of transmit it while they, you know, are sort of completely unaware, and, you know, that means that realistically, the actual sort of, you know, the outbreak could be within the millions by now, um, and, and we, you know, potentially wouldn't know it, um, but, you know, that kind of leads to that sort of exponential growth where we're going to sort of see sort of some really, really bad outcomes, but... Um, that kind of stuff is already realistically factored into the market. Now, my concern with kind of banking on Armageddon is, you know, things like this get sensationalized a lot. Uh, and, and while I'm not saying that it's not scary, it's certainly something that, you know, the media is having a field day with, sort of like making people panic for their lives, uh, you know, with something that's, you know, at the moment, you know, looking like a pretty bad flu. Um, and then, you know, realistically, let's say that the market forgets about this in two months and, oh, yeah, no, it just becomes another Ebola or bird flu or swine flu or whatever. Um, then it recovers and nothing happens and potentially you kind of lose your ass on that position. Um, that's why I, I don't believe in timing the market because oftentimes, you know, sort of these, these hypothetical sort of, oh, well, look, I sort of foresee this happening. If everyone else already foresees it, it's already priced into the market. If no one else foresees it, well maybe you're insane occasionally i think uh another question is uh why, why is like investing uh become uh, somewhere so much common nowadays like i know back in the old days it was illegal for christians to invest their money and in interest left to the jewish people which led to something massacres of them but why does it like become so popular for everyone to become like have like the jewish mindset of like you're allowed to invest and expect respect so you now like in the first crusade like the germans massacred People, uh, well, there was a difference between investing okay, and, 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 and loaning money. So you, there was like usury laws um, that were sort of banned by a lot of yeah, religions. That. And uh, and that was sort of specifically related to loaning people money on interest. You, you were allowed to invest money into people's businesses and they would share in the profit and things like that. Uh, but I think uh, certainly I have sort of seen it um, that uh, investing has become a lot more... Um, accessible to people in sort of like let's say the last 10 years so you know typically you know back when i started investing i literally had to pick up my phone and talk to some shady bloody dodgy stockbroker on the other end of the line that would try and sell me this new pink sheet piece of shit uh, and i'd be like no 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 no, no. 
just want to buy Vanguard. Thanks, Roger. Um, and nowadays, you don't have to do any of that. You just sort of open up your phone, you know, pull up Robinhood, you know, buy, sell, short. You know, you have access to a, like really, really complex instruments even that weren't available to average people back then. Um, so I think that accessibility has become a, a lot sort of better. Uh, and also the price of investing into sort of these sort of things, you know, back in the day, sometimes it would cost you $100 to place an investment. So you'd only really do it $10,000 at a time because uh, it kind of just only made sense to do it like that, uh, which kind of cut a lot of people out of the market. Uh, and, and these days, you know, you can realistically invest for free. So there's, there's probably a lot of it to it. And I think it's also a sort of a societal thing. You know, it's been a long time since a, a market crash. So people are kind of, uh, you know, getting into it and they have this mentality that, oh, well, you know, literally can't go tits up and they've never really experienced it. So I think that's probably uh, a lot of the uh, mentality as well there. Um, but I don't know. I don't have anything to base it on, but I would agree with you that there seems to be uh, no, a lot more people out there investing in things these days. Than... Well, no, my question is more like the concept of usury. Like I know for Islamic markets, you're not allowed to uh, ask for a loan with interest. Like, that's just like illegal and it goes against Islamic law. So like major banks in like Saudi Arabia and other places, like other very, very Middle Eastern countries, like you cannot have like a functioning stock market that like works in investing and works interest. But like in the West, where usury used to be completely illegal, no like rich king could ever touch it. And you need like the court to to uh, to like invest all your like like go loan out your money or, or have like the money loaned out for you if you ever want to go to war. Why has why has all the new countries like become less Christian and adopted all these central banking policies of like interest and all this stuff? Like, well, what what changed the mentality of everyone? You want me to speculate about the the historical progression of theology and society? I mean, that's. That's that's outside so, my pay grade, man. As, as it as it relates to usury and like interest, like, w like what has changed like the last two hundred years? Is like led to, like more like everyone investing with in in the West, and the, why that hasn't like that happened in East yet? Like secularism. Yeah, well, <coughs> it sounds like you're trying to steer the question. Like people have become less religious uh, as well. Uh, also, I think it's it's probably one of those things where people have potentially realised that. Uh, well, maybe we just kind of need to do this to facilitate a strong modern economy. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, your guess is probably as good as mine there. I, that would be sort of my two cents, I suppose. In the East, the reason that they didn't develop very much, a lot of investment and loaning things is because merchants and their entire class were really, really frowned upon in Confucianism and we're considered like j just above criminals and rapists and people with no class. Yeah. And also the, uh, the dynasties were, they, they wanted to have kind of monopoly on that sort of stuff too. So they didn't really, they didn't really like free, free markets. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe I can explore it. Maybe if there's something interesting there, um, we can do it. We'll do a video on it. But, um, but yeah, look, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. realistically, society changes. People, um, you know, you know, back in the day, did a lot of things that would seem very weird to us today, and and you know, we do a lot of things today that probably seem very weird back in the day. But uh, yeah, I mean, good question. But I mean, realistically, I think just sort of society progresses, and and we sort of realise that that's something that we need to do. Uh, sorry, baked potato. You've been trying to speak for twenty minutes. What was your question, man? Thank you. Um, so I just want to say this really quick. It's, I know you don't want to speak about this, but I still have this question. It's about the coronavirus. 
in your video of early 2020, you talked about how you the problem is because these things make people lose the make people like lose confidence and stability in the economy, right? Yep, yep. Okay, I could see myself saying something like that. So then, now that it's gotten <laughs> a lot worse, like right now I'm in Italy, and at the moment the thing's basically on fire. Um, to like change that opinion, do you think there would be more of a direct impact, or do you think the majority of the impact would still be people like losing stability and never investing? Yeah, well, I think yeah. still a majority of it um, is going to be people that. Uh, get sort of fearful because of course you know, it's a scary scary thing and, and people aren't kind of sure and people are fearful of the fear as well that's how we sort of see you know these stock markets closing and things like that now the direct impacts will come if you know supply chains are affected uh, and that is something that again uh, even if the, the the actual sort of threat of the virus is, is perceived um, people will sort of say well look I'm not going to risk it so I'm not going to show up to work if I don't show up to work things don't get shipped if things don't get shipped something in another country can't get made and obviously that's sort of the peril of of having sort of huge intertwined and very complex global supply chains now look um hey hope maybe i will be made a fool with that that video because i sort of um realistically sort of downplayed it and I sort of said oh well look you know um, this is one of those things that we see it every kind of four or five years is there's some new plague that's going to kill us all uh and you know historically uh, we haven't all died yet so um you know sort of the naysayers have, have kind of been wrong um, do I sort of realistically foresee it still sort of impacting um, global economy for, for an extended period of time? No. Um, but of course, you know, people have been very overcautious of it. And, you know, we've sort of seen in Italy and places like that, people have buying, bought up their, their sort of grocery stores and kind of gotten prepared to bunker down. And, and that kind of uh, reaction, of course, can uh, sort of slow, slow the economy down. But it, it's speculation. Look, honestly, my uh, opinion on the matter is just as good as yours and uh, you know just as good as anybody else's it's it's purely sort of speculation as to um, what the actual impacts will be what will come of it uh, and what that's going to mean for the economy I uh, just wanted to say I posted the like the uh, thing on like the Sharia law you the uh, economics discussion channel if you, if you ever like, I, are curious about it I have a question um, so oh go ahead no no you do you are here longer Oh, you unblocked. Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I have a question, which is like I, I read this recently that the top um, one thousand, I mean the Fortune one thousand companies, ninety percent of them have uh, the the supply chains have been affected. Like uh, I'm not talking about now, but how do you see this uh, uh, not necessarily impacting China's economy, but how do you see this impacting global complex supply chains? Will this finally be like I guess the the push needed for companies to diversify? Or do you think that people are willing to ride this out? Because if something bad happens and they have to move supply chains from China to somewhere else, they would be hit with tariffs. They would be, uh, I mean, a lot of jobs would be lost in China. Like, do you think, are, are companies willing to risk their market access? Yes. Um, so it's a really, uh, really interesting sort of scenario. And supply chains are um, almost as sacred to companies as like their intellectual property or their products and things like that, you know. The amount of effort that goes into supply chains and, and you know the really smart people in most big companies around the world they get put on supply chain duty i'm talking like their top top accountants top lawyers and, and top engineers they go into sort of supply chain management 
uh, because it's a complex thing and there's so many moving parts. But I think the best way to sort of look at this is uh, in terms of, um, you know, like, uh, let's say, like, you know, social economics and, and basically prisoner's dilemma. Now, modern economy, modern companies, their supply chain really, really impacts sort of how cheaply they can produce products and, and how sort of cheaply and competitively they can bring those products to market. Now, a lot of that, of course, involves sort of very intricate, you know, accessing this from here and shipping it there and, you know, sort of assembling it here and, and then repackaging it here and then labeling it here and, and then selling it there. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff now. Partially that's to access things like cheap labor. The other thing is, of course, to get around tariffs. Uh, absolutely, you hit the nail on the head there. Just as much work goes into accessing the cheapest, most effective construction as it does, you know, sort of weaving and dodging tariffs along the way. So that is kind of one of those things where there is going to be a kind of best supply chain that is going to deliver the cheapest, most, you know, effective products to the respective markets. Now, if an economy, if, if a uh, company builds in redundancies, it's going to do two things. So let's say, you know, a company like Apple um, wants to make sure that it can continue to supply phones and in a, like an event like this where supply chains in China are particularly affected, it would have to, let's say, I don't know, set up a shop in, in Africa or, or, or some other sort of low cost of manufacturing nation uh, and have that sort of on retainer, I suppose, ready to pick up when uh, China sort of inevitably, you know, falls down or, or whatever happens. Now that's going to be very, very expensive, which means the phones that they actually bring to market are going to be more, uh, more expensive and less competitive, uh, which means that, uh, well, actually that's kind of China, uh, that's kind of Apple's MO, bringing products that are less competitive and, and more expensive. So maybe a bad example, but you get what I'm trying to say. So they wouldn't do it. Now, this is where prisoner's dilemma comes in, and especially with global supply chains, is because they will say, oh, well, look, I mean, obviously, in the bad scenario, like we're experiencing now, where potentially our supply chains are affected, what's that going to mean for us? Now, of course, it's going to mean a sort of a loss of sales revenue and all that kind of stuff, but compared to their competition, they're also going to be affected at the same time. So it's not like there's uh, Samsung, for example, is going to be able to get a leg up on them in this kind of situation because Samsung's done the own, their own kind of cost-benefit analysis of having redundant supply chains and said, nah, too expensive. And I know if all of that goes to shit, it's going to be going to shit for everyone. So I'm not going to really lose out on my market share, which is the important part of that whole process. Um, and that is probably why we're realistically not going to see um, huge diversification in, in product supply chains purely because it's expensive to maintain and when shit does go wrong, it goes wrong for everyone, so who cares? I have an anecdote about that. At uh, my work, the, they were, were trying to order new laptops and it's, there's a probably about a two-month delay because the, uh, the Chinese market's tanked and there's no one delivering supplies to the factory. So yeah. they've had to opt for a, uh, a type of mm. a lower um, hardware laptop with less features just so they can get the uh, the laptops in well it's pretty interesting it is thanks so much for the topic what would be the difference between a bank giving you the money for a loan for you to buy a buy a house or buy a car or versus the bank just buying that house and car for you and then you have to just like pay back the bank like a, a higher amount like they buy they buy the house for like the market price and they sell that to you for like a higher price and they won't give you the house until you pay back the, the higher price of the, the house that they bought it 
Isn't yeah. it just in the home loan? Yeah, so I think it's so, just a regular loan. So, so home loans, they, they, I think I understand what you're trying to say. The, so the, ha- the, the bank would own the house solely, and they basically like rent it back to you, and you know, eventually, you know, so it's like a rent to buy kind of arrangement. Um, yeah, so there's a few things with that. Um, home loans are effectively sort of an instrument for banks to be a middleman between uh, the property market. It's still kind of the way that institutions indirectly invest in the property market. And how they do that is they use a house as a security for that uh, loan. Now, what they're really banking on is three things. You are buying a property that's going to maintain or appreciate in value. What that means is that, let's say you stop paying, well, they can just you know, yoink that house back on you and, and cover their losses. The other thing that they're betting on is that you will continue to make your repayments so that they can continue to get their 3% interest per year and, you know, make profit off you over the life of the loan. And, and the other thing is that, you know, of course, you won't sell it and refinance it and all that kind of stuff, but that's sort of relatively incidental. Um, now, banks don't want to be exposed to a property market because it's just, like, they don't want to be directly exposed to a particular property because it's too difficult to manage, you know. Anyone that has investment properties know that they're on the phone all the time to, to you know, property managers and you've got to find tenants and, and things like that. It's just not the business they're in. It doesn't scale very effectively. But what does... That's exactly what a few of our banks feel. Yes, yes. I, 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 yeah, but they're, they're sort of a little bit, little bit unique. Um, so there's, um, uh, like, in, in Australia, there's, like, uh, the Arab bank and uh it's actually legitimately called the arab bank and, and they do that they have zero percent home loans but people sort of don't actually understand how it all kind of works it effectively does exactly the same thing but i suppose they don't have an interest rate so it's it's uh you know gets the tick of approval either way uh for a traditional home loan um you sort of see that now banks sort of what that gives them is the ability to invest basically into property but instead of actually having to look after particular brick and mortar you know buildings they just have this Excel spreadsheet full of lovely uh, things that are returning, you know, X, Y, Z interest over X, Y, Z terms. Beautiful. You do a lot of things with that. You can securitize it. Um, it's also very, very easy for you to manage. And it also sort of impacts uh, and controls the risk a lot. You're not directly exposed to a single property, but also uh, even if hypothetically the, the value of that property does dip, so let's say you buy your family home for a million dollars and, you know, you get an $800,000 home loan on it and then, I don't know, a property bubble happens and it's only worth $700,000. Now, realistically, if the bank was in that position, they would have lost their ass. They, they would have lost half a million dollars worth of, um, half a million dollars worth of value. But a lot of people will continue to pay their home loan even though they, they're sort of underwater on it. Um, you know, they may they may not, and that's sort of a risk. But, you know, a lot of people, they, they just want to keep their home and, you know, they're going to happy to keep on paying it. And they don't want to sort of declare bankruptcy and, and lose their sort of family home, regardless of what it's sort of worth on, on paper. Uh, and so that controls the risk there as well. So they get a slightly lower return than if they were to directly invest into property. But they also get sort of lower risk and a much more sort of palatable kind of investment uh, sorry, a much more palatable asset structure that scales effectively for the large institutions that are banks. Good question, and one that I can talk about all day because it's actually sort of what I do for work. What I think we'll make a video on like three law banking. Oh, oh lordy. Maybe I will make it for um, like a Patreon exclusive video because it is going to get demonetized if I put it on YouTube and probably get me slapped on the ass. <laughs> uh, why would it be demonetized? It seems like a pretty interesting video. Because uh, any, anything, I think it's any, kind of obvious. Any, oh, anything to do with have... Islam or, or talking about, you know, it, it's just one of those 
touchy touchy subjects no one really wants to put advertising or and sometimes you know it's outside community guidelines to even sort of consider it it's really hard to argue against it so i as interesting as it may be uh, i'm sort of ultimately beholden to the platform that uh, makes me relevant i suppose um so really quick another thing is that we're talking about patreon exclusive video so it made me think did you ever consider join or at least trying to join nebula I don't do you know, know what that is? I don't think I'm special enough. Okay. We'll make you special. One day. Yeah, we'll um, make you special. I can uh, tweet at that that Rene with you guys and the polymatter. Do you want me to add them? I'll add them, dude. I'll swarm. We'll get you your diamond <laughs> place. Hashtag Australian diversity. We need more Australians in everywhere. Yeah, well, hey, hey, uh, I mean, uh, for, what it, for what it's worth, we just got over 280,000 subscribers, which is pretty insane, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. Australian. Congratulations. I mean, you basically on one day. You're on, you're on your way to one million. <laughs> True. And you also did start posting only like eight months ago, so that's pretty good, 280k in eight months. Oh, yeah, it's I, I, wow, I, insane. I, I, I'm telling you, man. You just you just need to make one video on the economics of Taylor Swift versus Ariana Grande, man. You're in. Maybe Dude, you're in. he's right. I am exactly. right. I'm hundred percent right. You need to compare. You need to compare famous people. Yeah, exactly. See, GC of Ariana Grande. What's going on? She built a palace in New York. What's going on? <laughs> All I'm saying is that we shouldn't give Australians too much yeah, power. What happens when we do? <clears throat> World War II. <laughs> Economics, Queen Elizabeth explained. Yeah. Well, yeah, oh. I, so I really, yeah, man, it has been sort of six months. I, I started posting very, very frequently in August last year. Yeah. Your uh, video with the most views is your one on North Korea. I think your uh, controversial videos are the ones that could, like, get the most views. Or but exactly. But but do you get paid off of them? Like, are they monetizable? At least the North Korea one. I mean, the second one's Norway, so I think it's kind of a toss-up. I think they just yeah. like letters, uh, countries that start with N. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Norway I mean, Japan, is a good so. because it's such a good economy. Like, they use their resources so effectively. I think it's lame. I think it's lame because I'm jealous. I think you're lame. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're lame. Your right. your country's on fire. Video close like that of uh, North Korea, like uh, another completely failed economy. Here's the thing, here's the thing, though. And, Somalia. And, and, if, if you do like Somalia, for example, and like they're they're like stock, like they have stock trading in Somalia, like on whether pirate raids like work or not. Like if you do a video on that, I, I can assure you, like it's, that's probably gonna be like another million views too. You got to You got to think uh, of, like um. It's it's one of those annoying things, and I wish it wasn't necessarily the case. But you've got to think of, um, uh, you know, video topics in the sense of sort of how abrasive they are to you know um, a, a company and sort of community guidelines. So North Korea, pretty much anyone kind of looks at North Korea and, and is universally like, oh yeah, what a basket case economy. There's no real controversy there, and the same is ultimately true with let's say if we did do. Um, you know, uh, you know, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, or Somalia, whatever, or Somalia, yeah, Somalia, yeah. for example. People sort of say, "Oh, well, yeah." Universally, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting, and, and piracy is bad. But as soon as you bring up things, mm -hmm. especially, especially Muslim countries, my God, my like, like, for example, my video on Iran, which was pretty much a sort of a topical analysis of a country, um, 
based on sort of like, you know, key determinants. I didn't really sort of take too much of a side or anything like that. Instantly demonetized, which, you know, whatever. Well, um, it, well, well, if you ever curious, I actually do like the uh, Somalia video, and like, you, I think you know a bit about their uh, stock market, and, like how they bet on uh, raids and stuff, or buy, bet on the piracy. Uh, I would say that would make a huge, fascinating video that could probably get you, uh, that'd probably make you Did, you... <coughs> Did you do one on Zimbabwe by any chance? I can't remember. Not yet, but it will no. be done. But Zimbabwe's economy is very interesting because it's growing quite fast, even though they have a lot of problems. They actually have a lower unemployment rate than South Africa, by like 20% or something. Wow. So they're, 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 really, they're a really interesting economy because everyone thinks Zimbabwe is just an absolute failure, but for an African standards, it's technically not. Because I mean, the there's worse countries. In terms of growth is Ethiopia. Like the, there's also the better countries, countries too. China right now. Yeah, of course. But we're talking about like Africa. Botswana and Kenya are just so much better. No, no Botswana like, is really, really Ethiopia bad. Is the highest no, 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 no. Botswana is really good. But Botswana. Yeah. Oh, maybe. No, hang no. on. Maybe I'm thinking of another one. Botswana has the second highest inequality on earth. Actually, growing the similar to Rwanda is a closer child of a growth economy in Africa. Well, Rwanda is an excellent case. Uh, uh, Kagame, Paul Kagame is very interesting. Uh, people think he's he's kind of like Lee Kuan Yew for Africa. He's very disciplined. He forces his people to clean up the streets once uh, once every two weeks or something. And yeah, he's he's a huge inspiration for a lot of African countries because he adopted the capitalist system, and he's doing. Uh, are we talking about Zimbabwe or Rwanda? No, uh, Rwanda. Paul Kagame. This, 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 this how it really goes. Um, look, I. Um, appreciate the uh suggestions no, we're just saying Don't we need to do more african countries we will do every yeah, uh, man, actually, I, africa, I'll do. I, I am actually going to do another african country in the not too distant future so don't worry and uh, you'll be satisfied but in the meantime because it's the, uh, uh, it's what, you need. What, what about the economy of jamaica and how much white contribute to the economy through tourism all right so this is the part of the q a session where it's devolved into video suggestions and it's also the part where I go to bed. Um, so thanks for the Good time night. to go, guys. Thanks for these somewhat more controversial conversations. And uh, I will see you all on Sunday. Too bad. I wanted to take you. It's a pretty random time.